Morning. How was everybody this morning? Awake, alive, and ready. All right. I'm going to pray again. Okay? Is that allowed? I'm going to pray again. Father, we thank you for this for this time. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've spoken to us. God, that you didn't leave humanity in their sin, but you spoke to us through Jesus Christ. And you saved us by his, his death. Father, I ask that you would uh, help me today. Help me as I preach your word. That what I say would be true. That you would... Uh, you would guide, and that Holy Spirit, that you would come and show us new things, things we've never seen before, or old things that we've heard many times, but in a, in a new way. Father, I thank you for dads. God, I thank you for my dad that you gave me, that taught me grace and the importance of the word that you've given in Jesus. And God, I pray that we would see you as a, as a father today who came to rescue, came to defeat our greatest enemies. In Jesus' name, amen. So depending on which list you go to, you'll find that two things which people fear the most are public speaking and death. If so, today is going to be difficult. Because uh, I'm going to talk about the latter, death, while doing the former, speaking publicly. One study that put the fear of public speaking above the fear of death led Jerry Seinfeld to say, this means to the average person, if you have to go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than having to do the eulogy. Well, that's what I'm here to talk about. And some of you may think that I'm a little young. need to get a few more years under my my belt, uh, but just this week my wife discovered in my ear a hair that was coming outside of its normal place. Uh, so I'm a little closer to falling over the backside of the hill than walking up the front of it. So uh, anyway, that's I guess some of my reasoning for, uh, for doing this. But in all seriousness, we live in a perplexing culture that in one sense is infatuated with death with violence, and in another sense, does all it can to avoid it. As a culture, we play violent video games. We watch movies with explosions, with piles of bodies everywhere, nameless ones. We read murder mysteries. We sit fastened to our television at the latest natural disaster, the latest terrorist attack, shooting, whatever it might be. While at the same time, we get plastic surgery on almost any part of the body imaginable to try to keep away the decay of death. We pop all kinds of pills, vitamins to keep healthy. We have our kids eat organic. We have rest homes, hospitals that basically try to keep us alive as long as scientifically possible. In our conversations, we try not to touch the topic or at least not to dive too deeply into it. Some of us even avoid or minimize conversations about death with members of the family of one who has just died. Maybe we make a quick comment, give a quick hug, but we just don't know what to say. We don't 
always know how to deal with it. We've invented interesting euphemisms for it. Passing away. Entered the great beyond. Has left us. The fact is, we don't know how to handle it. And we're alive. I mean, why would we want to? But apart from the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, all of us, every single one of us, from the youngest in here to the oldest in here, will die. Healthy or sick, it will happen. We're confronted with death all the time, even if on an impersonal level. Some of us actually read the obituaries. Uh, And if not, the actual obituaries we read on our web pages, we see on our newscast, death. Just this week, another school shooting in Oregon. city of 16,000. Not much bigger than ours. Or one 15-year-old student who will remain nameless, armed with several hundred rounds, shot and killed another 14-year-old student and went on to kill himself. Impersonal at times. We've witnessed thousands of deaths through media, watching it over and over again, reporters bringing it to us in our living rooms. So we are bombarded with the reality of death daily. And not as often, but when it comes devastating on a personal level, when our lives are disrupted by the death of one we love, Sometimes it's slow and painful. I had a friend this, or just these last couple weeks whose dad, who loved Jesus, died from cancer. Other times it's the suddenness of a heart-rending phone call, maybe a knock at the door. Most of my life I was very little affected by, by death. Until one of my closest friend's baby died of SIDS over a decade ago. Then, of course, the end of May. <clears throat> Excuse me. When John passed away, Kate's dad. And I know that there's a lot of stories in here that are also heartbreaking. <clears throat> But it's coming for all of us. It's not fiction. It's not just another story, even even a story of a family member. It's coming for each one of us. And so we, we dread it. Um, the dread can come in different ways, countless ways. It's revealed by how we avoid it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. Sometimes we trivialize, trivialize it with comedy, joking, not taking life seriously. Sometimes the fear is shown by just anxiety, worry that it's coming, that it may come for us, that it may come for one that we love. I can remember as a kid uh, being haunted by death, though it came indirectly. And if I'm honest, I still have my moments that if I allowed a press on me would probably become debilitating. The reason why I say it was indirect is because in my childhood, I can remember fearing very deeply the thought of eternity. And by this, I mean a fear of any eternity. As a Christian raised in a Christian home, hearing of, hearing of Jesus, the rescuer of death, 
It was not a fear of an eternity of nothingness. It was not a fear of hell. But it was a fear of being in heaven forever. The, the infinite duration, the size of eternity was psychologically crushing. Novelist Stephen King, in one section out of one of his earliest books, through the voice of a character called The Man in Black, wrote this, The greatest mystery of the universe offers is not life, but size. The child, who is at most at home with wonder, says, Daddy, what is above the sky? And the father says, The darkness of space. The child, what's beyond space? The father, the galaxy. The child, beyond the galaxy. Father, another galaxy. The child, beyond the other galaxies. The father, no one knows. You see, size defeats us. And that was a great description of the fear that I felt. I didn't ask for it. It was just there. It was a part of me. And I'm not the only one who has feared death and its implications. In his 1973 Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death, cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker gave us the point of his book right in the beginning. This is what he writes. And this man is not a Christian, to my knowledge. The main thesis of this book is the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying it in some way that it is the final destiny of man. So here's Becker, an anthropologist, believing man is an animal which obviously we would disagree with, but noticing in his research that the fear of death is universal to the human condition. Is this correct? Is it biblical? Can we assume that every single one of us in some way deal with the fear of death? And the answer, of course, is yes. We read it earlier this morning. In Hebrews 2.15, whether it's the size of eternity whether it's the process of dying, whether it's death, whether it's what happens after death, whatever it might be, the dread of death is an enslaving fear that no human can escape apart from the person and work of Christ. Before we go to our text, which was read by Ted in Hebrews, we need to understand that the narrative of Scripture, that the story of the Scriptures tell us about the world and why the world is the way that it is. And by this, we'll see why death is the sum of our fears. In Genesis, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, the very first phrase of the very first verse. We learn that in the beginning, there was God. God. Nothing but the triune, personal God of life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the first thing in the first sentence that it says that God does is that God creates. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As it goes on, we see that creative life pours from God's being. That through His Word, He creates sky. He creates sea, porcupines, koala bears, beetles, brontosaurus, male and female. The pinnacle of His creation in the image of Himself. He places man in a lovely garden. A perfect garden. He commands them, fill the whole earth. Have dominion over it. He tells them to enjoy every tree in the garden. Enjoy all of them. Everything that I have made. But don't eat the one tree. 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On day seven, we know that God rests. And this doesn't mean that God was tired. This means that God was satisfied. He was enjoying all that he had made. In that chapter, that first chapter of Genesis, we see that creation is not God, but the creation is very good. He repeats it over and over again. And God saw that it was good. The rhythm goes throughout the days of creation. Very good. He enjoys His creation and He gives His creation for man to enjoy. Life, delight. There's not any brokenness anywhere. There's no curse anywhere. There's no relational conflict. No death. But, chapter 3. Satan, the serpent, tempts Adam and Eve to disobey the good word of God. The very word that gave them their very life. They turn from God's good word. They listen to Satan's lie. They obey the lie of the devil. And death enters the world. Due to their trust in Satan's lie, due to their own sin, God drives them out of the garden into a fallen and a broken world. The curse of death, its tentacles spread to every corner of creation to all the hearts of every man and woman who would be born after Adam and Eve. Bringing separation from God. Bringing the judgment of God on creation. Contrary to some opinion, the story of the world is not the story of death bringing greater life, but that death came as a result of the sin of Adam. Death came as a result of sin. Not obeying not enjoying God and His Word. The Apostle Paul put it, the wages of sin is death. That's the payment for sin. It's the desecration of God's good creation. It's the great enemy of human beings from Adam. As a result of Adam, as a result of their sin, we're separated from this holy good God of the universe and His good creation. We're helplessly captivated by sin. We're in the tyranny of death. Just thinking your, your newspaper looks the way that it does, your television reports look the way that it does because of this story, because this is true. Your heart, the wickedness in it, the self-righteousness in it, it looks the way it does because this is your story. This is all of our story. This is what the Bible has taught from the very beginning. But enough of that. Enough of the bad news. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 gives us the rest of the story. We don't know who wrote this book. I know Bob thinks it's Paul. That's okay. It doesn't actually matter because as Christians, we believe that the scriptures are the inspired, the authoritative word of God. It's not Paul's opinion. It's not some writer's opinion. It's the divine words of the Holy Spirit spoken through men. So, these verses that we read about death, these verses that we read about fear, about Jesus, are not opinion. They are truth. That's been said, that famous certainty, death and taxes. Well, they will end. They will end. Because the Bible is more certain. God has spoken. It will end. 
This endures forever. It defines our reality. It defines our past, our present, our future. So to get us up to speed in chapter 2, we need to see that in chapter 1, what the author does is he establishes that Jesus of Nazareth is God's Son. He claims at the very beginning of the book that before the birth of Jesus, God spoke to the world through prophets, through the Old Testament. God had been speaking through prophets, through men. But now, but now at the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, God has spoken definitively, finally, in His Son, in the words of in the actions, in the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has spoken. So, when we are trying to hear from God, has God spoken to me? He has spoken. He has spoken in Jesus. None of us, none of us has to worry about God speaking because He has already spoken in Christ. He's God's Word. But He's not only that. He's not only the Word of God. He's not only the Son of God. Chapter 1 also gives us the reality that God's Son, Jesus, is in fact God. In chapter 1, verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. The radiance of the glory of God. Jesus, the exact imprint of His nature. He's God in the flesh. That means there's no other God in the universe but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who came in the flesh as Jesus Christ. As the old Nicene Creed puts it, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light. Very God of very God. Or if creeds kind of bore you, Stephen Colbert, wise scholar, no, actually a comedian, in one conversation with a liberal New Testament scholar that denied Christ's divinity, he said to him this, what's the son of a duck? It's a duck. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. So while chapter 1 of Hebrews makes clear that Jesus is God's Son and 100% God, chapter 2 makes clear that Jesus is 100% man. We are an evangelical church, conservative. We don't typically have issue with Jesus being God. But sometimes we don't make Jesus man enough, human enough. And that's a massive mistake. It's an equally heretical mistake not to have Jesus the man, Jesus as God. It's not enough that Jesus only be God. Jesus is also a man or all of our hope for humanity, for redemption, is broken. Why? Why does Jesus need to be a man? Why does God's Son need to take on flesh? Because He had to take on skin and bone to liberate us from death. He had to be a man to enter death and to defeat death, to kill death, to defeat the devil. God made a promise in the Garden of Eden that we didn't talk about. 
He made a promise right after the fall of man to Satan that one day her seed, Eve's seed, would come and crush his head. He promised the devil that right after sin. Sin, grace. Word spoken, you will be defeated. There is another one coming. That's what Hebrews 2 gives us. It's a fulfillment of this promise. I know we read a lot of verses there at the beginning. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, Start at verse 10. Verse 10. Look at it with me. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. First thing we need to figure out is who is this verse talking about? Who, who is the he in this verse? Pronouns, pronouns can be a little tricky in the Bible. Um, you can be talking about several persons in the previous verse and then say he in the next. Which one is it talking about? The he here, as the TNIV puts it, which is correct, is God. God, the Father. Look at the phrase, it was fitting. It was fitting that God... God, the creator of heaven and earth, the maker of the moon, the mountains, the one by whom, for whom all of creation exists. It was fitting that this transcendent, this big, this sovereign, holy God do this. Really? I mean, it's fitting that he do this? It's actually counterintuitive when you think about it. We're talking about the sovereign God, creator. How, how is it right? How is it suitable for God to do it. For God to bring about His plan of redemption. To gather His children by making His Son, the God-man, perfect through suffering. Would a king suffer for his subjects? Would a master die for his servants? No, not in, not in this world. Not in our sinful world's understanding of what power is, what, what authority is. Islam despises the idea that God is a son or that the son would suffer. But this is exactly how God accomplishes our redemption. Why is it fitting for God to do it this way? There are two reasons. Number one, because it fulfills His plan. Number two, because it matches His character. Number one, it was fitting for God to do this because through the sufferings of the Son, He restores His good creation that we talked about and fulfills His plan to redeem it. We see that in the phrase, in bringing many sons to glory. Look at that word glory. Glory. God's aim is to restore the glory of those created in His image. To restore all that was lost in the garden at the fall of man. His mission is to make the flawed flawless. To make the broken whole. To make sinners His sons. Through Jesus, God has restored the glory of every man and woman who trusts Jesus. The Bible, as we know, it tells us that everything that God does, everything that God does is for His glory. But this verse also tells us that it is for ours. One commentator, reflecting on the Jewish and Christian background surrounding the word glory here, mentioned that it means divine power and presence. 
And what God is doing by bringing everyone who trusts Jesus to glory is that He's bringing them into His eternal presence. He's bringing them into His, His rule that was all lost and forfeited in the garden of Adam and Eve. The unhindered access to the presence of God that Adam and Eve had in the garden, the joy of that, God has brought back. He's brought it back in an even greater measure through the Son of God, through Jesus. Now, instead of death as the end, God's kids can be assured of being in His presence forever. Forever, in a new heavens, in a new earth where righteousness dwells. The second reason, first, it fulfills His plan. He reverses all that Adam broke. He restores the glory. Number two, it matches his character. It matches the nature of God to bring many sons to glory and make his son perfect through suffering because who is God? He's gracious. He's merciful. He's compassionate. In Exodus, you see that. I've talked about it before in the divine name the gracious, merciful, and compassionate God, full of steadfast love. This is who He is. So it's not just in the abstract. His mercy is compassion. It isn't just in the abstract. It isn't just doctrinal formulation. It's in the here and now. It's in history. He's the kind of God, God is the kind of Father, that through the sufferings of His own Son would rescue the suffering, would rescue suffering sinners to make them also his sons. I was thinking, for those of you who knew the title, it doesn't seem like a Father's Day sermon, but it is. This is a Father's Day sermon. The story of the Bible, the story of the world, is actually a family matter. It's Father, it's Son, it's Holy Spirit, it's the sons and daughters of God. God is a dad. He's a dad that goes to rescue his kids. It shows us that at the very heart of the gospel, gospel means good news, at the heart of the good news of our faith is that God the Father and His uncreated, uncreated Son, His divine Son, rescues His created sons and daughters and brings them into His own glory. Augustine, a church father, put it this way, God makes of sons of men sons of God, because God hath made of the Son of God the Son of Man. How does God accomplish this? How does He accomplish this specifically? How does He save disobedient sinners, death-bound, hell-bound, deserving sinners? How does He save them? He saves them by the suffering and death of Jesus. It's mind-boggling, but this verse teaches that the sinless Son of God is actually made perfect through suffering. Made perfect through suffering. That phrase doesn't make any sense on one level. Because is it saying that Jesus was sinful before He suffered? No. No, it's not. It's not, it's not saying that something tainted is going to become untainted. But perfection here is the idea of attaining completion. It's of achieving a goal. Jesus completed the goal. He completed the mission of the Father when He came by suffering death. 
through crucifixion. That's how he did it. There was no other way. The mission of God would not be complete, would not be fulfilled without a man, without the man, Christ Jesus, entering into the full suffering and death of humanity. And I was thinking, we, we try all we do. We try all we can do to avoid suffering. At least I do. And yet God's plan, God's gospel from the beginning of time to save the world is to save it by slaughtering His Son, by the suffering of His Son. So God, God is not standoffish toward us. We do not have a, a deist God, a God who turns on history, winds up the clock, steps back and lets it happen. That is not our God. Our God enters into the mess. He enters into the suffering. He draws near to the broken world to enter its horrors and to restore the glory of creation. For those of you, and all of us do in some way, some more than others, for those of you who struggle with the reality of God in a world of seemingly meaningless, continued suffering, This may not answer all your questions, but it is the answer. It is the answer to the questions. The greatest theological problem of the world is not the suffering of sinners who are not innocent. It's the suffering of the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was innocent. And yet, this verse, 2.10, tells us that it's not a problem. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's how it all was complete. It was fitting for God in a world of suffering to save the world by the suffering of His Son. John Stott, a prominent evangelical who passed away recently, Time Magazine in 2005 actually called him one of the most influential people in the world. He said this was actually one of the reasons why he was a Christian. He wrote, Why am I a Christian? One reason is the cross of Christ. Indeed, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. It is the cross that gives God his credibility. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche, the 19th century German philosopher, ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how? How could one worship a God who was immune to it? God isn't. God's Son is not immune to it. He shares the same flesh and blood that you and I share. Look at verses 14 and 15. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Since. It's a great word. Since the children. The men and women, that verse 13 says, were given to Jesus by the Father. Since they have flesh and blood, since they have arms, since they have elbows, noses, toes, Flesh and blood, since they're entirely human, so too will Jesus have the same things. Jesus knows what it is to be human because he was fully human. Fully human. Bathroom breaks, both kinds. One, two. Fully human. 
thinking about him swinging the hammer with Joseph, calluses on his hands, leg cramps after working hard. We're supposed to feel the, the, the humanness, the mannishness of Jesus Christ. That's what the writer's doing here with these words flesh and blood. It's critical to our faith. If we downplay the humanity of Christ, there's no hope. If we downplay the humanity of Christ, there is no hope. The Apostle John said that the way we identify a false prophet, how you identify somebody who is teaching falsehood, is whether or not they confess Jesus Christ come in the flesh. If a religious teacher with the name Christian, whatever, says that Jesus does not come in the flesh, 1 John 4, 2-3 says they are not from God. They have the spirit of the Antichrist. So the Antichrist is not just the figure at the end of the world we got to worry about, that we write books and do movies about. It's about anyone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh. We can't recoil from this thought that God would be a man, which some religions do. The second person of the Trinity was made flesh. He became human. Hebrews makes this undeniably clear in that verse that I just read. Why? Why did he do this? And here it is. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came to earth to die. And not just to die, but to do something by his dying. Through, the word says, through his dying, His execution on a cross reserved for the worst of criminals. Through that, Jesus would do two things. He would destroy and he would deliver. He would destroy the devil who has the power of death and he would deliver those who are enslaved to the fear of death. This is one of the very reasons, one of the very purposes that Jesus comes into the world is to destroy death and the devil Destroy it. This does not mean the devil is annihilated, that he's no longer here anymore. What the Greek word actually means is that Jesus' death makes death, makes the devil inoperative, useless, inactive. The death of Jesus renders Satan's power over death powerless by dying. Satan entered the garden of God's good creation as a deceptive serpent. He tempted Adam and Eve to sin. He plunged human history into a history of death through his temptation and as a result barred them from the tree of life. But now God has done something new. Jesus is the second Adam. He enters human history to disarm Satan by dying on a tree so that the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve have access to the tree of life and will never, ever die. A lot of times we think the purpose of Jesus' death is just to get our sins forgiven. And of course, that is one of the main purposes of Jesus' death. We see that in verse 17, which we're not going to talk about. But it was also to conquer death. 
It was to conquer death and the devil. 1 John 3.8, to go back to John. John said it this way, The reason, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason God became flesh was to destroy the devil and his works. The devil's job description is to steal, to kill, and destroy. Jesus undoes this. He renders it powerless. And interestingly, he decimates this power. He undoes Satan's weapons by using Satan's own weapon against him. What did David use to finish off Goliath? The great enemy of the people of God. The giant taunting the people of God. What did David use? He used Goliath's own sword to cut off his head. That's what Jesus does. He defeats Satan by his own weapon. He defeats Satan by dying. Remember how all the women of Israel would sing of the exploits of David more than Saul? They would sing songs recounting the great works of their hero, their champion, David, the slayer of their enemies, thousands of them. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is not only our Savior from sin, He is our champion. He's our champion over death and the devil. The word founder, which was back in verse 10, the word founder has the connotation of a champion, of a forerunner, of one who goes before, one who blazes the trail, a leader who brings deliverance by defeating his foes for his people. Jesus' aim in defeating Satan was to deliver those enslaved to death into its fear. Fear. The introduction of the sermon. That's what it brings us back to. And this is the best news in the world. Jesus does what we cannot do. We can't do it. There's no deliverance from death, from the fear of death on our own. We're imprisoned to it. It enslaves us. It's something we cannot shake. We Americans, you know, we think we're, we're free. We're not free. We do anything we can from drugs to therapy, sex, shopping, entertainment, good deeds to weaken our anxiety over death. But ultimate liberation from death can only come if it's conquered. Blaise Pascal, he was a philosopher, he said, Let us imagine a number of men in chains, all condemned to death, where some are killed each day in the sight of others. And those who remain see their own fate in that of their fellows and wait their turn, looking at each other sorrowfully without hope. It's an image of the human condition. But God's gospel gives us something different to imagine. Imagine. Imagine those men in chains, condemned to die, not looking at each other sorrowfully, not looking at each other without hope, but looking at another man. The God-man. Jesus. Heading up a mountain. A mountain called the place of the skull to die for their sins and release them from condemnation. Imagine this man who took on this frailty of the human condition, death, shedding his blood to release men from their deserved hopelessness and condemnation. And then imagine this man sharing this humanity, this other fellow, rising from the dead, 
conqueror, champion, with the keys of death and Hades to release them. Imagine that. It's not a fairy tale. That is the gospel. That is the good news. It's news as sure as yesterday's news. Jesus is the victor. He died the death we should have died. If we want to be rid of our paralyzing fear of death, look to Jesus. Look to the champion. It's thinking, how do we, how do we conquer a fear? One of the ways, at least for me sometimes, is to bring someone else. To bring someone else to help you confront it, to help you deal with it. You ever had a bully who bugged you at school? You were afraid of? I can remember this one kid who always just throw balls right at me, those big rubber balls, and just hit me with it. That was a Christian school. Well, what's one of the options? One of the options is bring your older brother. I didn't have an older brother, but bring your older brother. Bring somebody else who's bigger, who's stronger than the bully. Because this older brother is not only going to beat down the bully, he's going to beat out your fear. You're going to feel better. Your older brother's with you. You don't have to deal with the bully anymore. And Jesus, in this passage, in verse 11, it says, He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is the older brother of all of those who trust Him. Our older brother took all our fears. Our older brother took our greatest fears, defeated our greatest enemy, death and the devil. He's our big brother. He's our hero. He's our champion. He takes our dread of death, our enslavement to it, and defeats it by rising from the dead. And he is not ashamed to call you brothers if you do what? If you trust him. Jesus is not ashamed. Man, I've got a lot of things to be ashamed of. Jesus defeated all that at the cross. Trust him. He will not be ashamed to call you brother. It's what he came to do. He's our champion. This is our hope. Sermon's not mainly about fear. It's not mainly about dread. It's about hope. A while ago, we celebrated resurrection on Easter Sunday. We celebrate that day that Jesus rose from the dead. And these verses in Hebrews obviously emphasize more so this idea of suffering, the reality of suffering and death of Jesus the man. But we also know from the Gospels that Jesus bodily rose from the dead as a man. The proof that Jesus beat the devil, that he defeated death, is that he's alive. That Jesus is alive. He rose bodily from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-6. Paul outlines the the heartbeat of our faith. I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, emphasizing that, buried, dead, that He was raised on the third day in, in accordance with the Scriptures. It fulfilled all of this. And that He appeared. He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Why does he make it so explicit? He's saying this happened. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's based on eyewitness accounts. It's fulfilled in the Word of God, and it is based on the accounts of people that saw him alive, bodily, not just spiritually, not just a ghost, bodily, physically alive. And so you know how news 
of the death of a loved one can change your world forever. And it does. It changes our lives forever when somebody dies. It's an enemy. But Jesus defeats death. That news is just as earth-shattering even more. It changes the world. Your life, the life of your family, the life of the world, will never be the same when you trust Christ. Everyone who turns from their sins, from their self-righteousness, and trusts this resurrected Jesus will one day rise from the grave to be with Him. You don't get to heaven by paying your dues to God, but you get to heaven by God's good news in Jesus. You won't conquer your fear of physical death. You won't conquer death itself. But you will conquer it if you trust the conqueror who took death in your place. The only way to overcome death is to trust the one who overcame it. I was thinking if we don't believe that we're sinful, the evidence is everywhere. It's in your life and the evidence is in that you're going to die. The wages of sin. The payday for your sin is coming upon your death. But the beauty of the gospel is that you don't have to pay it. You don't have to pay that wage. You can't pay for something that's free. We see this in the book of Revelation. Revelation, of course, gives us the end of the story. Revelation 21 gives us a beautiful picture of the new heavens and the new earth where only righteousness dwells, where creation is restored, where God is with His people. No more curse, no more death. speaks of the fact that there's no tears, no mourning, no crying, No pain. The former things have passed away. In verse 5, God says, Behold, I'm making all things new. Write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The second death is the worst. The lake of fire. But the good news, the way out of the second death is trusting Jesus Christ. You know what it is? It's being thirsty. That's all. It's not paying a payment. It's being thirsty, being needy, being helpless. God says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
Later, in 2217, at the very, almost the very end of the Bible, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. We do not have to pay for our death, for the second death, because Jesus Christ has paid for it. We trust Him. And we're with Him. Jesus is the living water. He quenches the thirst. He is eternal life. The way into God's new world, the way into the new heavens and the new earth, is through Jesus, who conquered Satan, defeated death, and forgives sin. And this is what communion is about. It's about remembering. It's about remembering and receiving the blood and body, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is our hope, our life. With Him, all of us, with Him, all of us, no matter what we face, can say, it is well with our soul. And not only that it is well with our soul, that it is well with our body. We're going to be resurrected with Christ forever, all purchased by His blood. Levi, worship team.
On the night that Jesus defeated the dread of death. On the night that Jesus defeated death itself, disarmed the devil. Scriptures say he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our champion. God, I pray that you would encourage us. So many fears, so many worries that plague us. May this good news set deeply in our hearts. What you did for the world was gracious, was wonderful. We have so much to look forward to. Holy Spirit, come be with us this week. Let us know this freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.